Have you ever had an expression or heard an expression in English that confused you? Somebody was just talking and they used a phrase and you said, I'm sorry, what was that? I remember when I was working with this Australian gal, I was traveling on the youth evangelism team to different schools and churches, and Sammy, or Samantha, had all these phrases from Australia, yeah, things like fair dinkum. And I would say, what? Or even sometimes just her accent. She would say something, or instead of a cookie, she'd say bicky, or instead of a raisin, she'd say sultana. And I would have to say, hold on, what? Can you, can you explain what you just said to me? So in different English-speaking countries, we have things that are confusing. But even here in America, there are phrases that are a little bit confusing. Like if somebody says, you're barking up the wrong tree. Has anyone heard that phrase before? You know, when I first heard this growing up, I thought it was saying, you are taking the bark off of the wrong tree. Barking up. That's how I interpret it. But barking up means you are a hound dog searching after a fox or some animal, and you're at a tree barking because you think it's in that tree when really it's in a different tree. In other words, you're confused. You're mistaken. Barking up the wrong tree. What about stealing someone's thunder? If that was the first time you ever heard that, you would say, what? You're stealing my... No, excuse me, what did you... That would be really confusing. Or when we say, hey, that's a piece of cake. What do we mean by that? It's really easy. What's that, Rhea? It's really easy. Or we say, easy as pie. Well, I've tried to make pie before. It's not always that easy. <laughs> the crust is kind of what gets me. Filling part, not so hard. But the crust, if it, you know, especially what kind of crust you're making. I leave that for Sarah. She's the, the crust maker in our home. But it'd be good for me to learn that, too. Piece of cake. How did that become synonymous with, oh, that's easy? Maybe it's because it's easy to eat a piece of cake. Ah, easy peasy. Lemon squeezy. That's another one. What does that mean? We're just making up words and sticking them together. And this one, I still, I didn't look it up. I thought it would be fun just not to know the phrase, Bob's your uncle. What does that mean? Anita, I think she might know. She's, uh-huh. <laughs> okay, does anybody know what Bob's your uncle means? Okay, it's not as, it's not as common. Um, I had to search for, for phrases that were a little less common, because a lot of them we really know. So that's something you can look up and maybe tell me next time you see me. And there it is. But how did we get? Yeah, see, that's the, the uh, but thank you. And there it is. Bob's your uncle. Yeah. My dad was in eastern Oregon talking with some people. And in eastern Oregon in Grant County, there's only one stoplight in the whole county. And it's a fairly large county. I asked a local about the stoplight. And he said, oh, yeah, that thing's annoying. You know, it just is a different part of the world. And 
because <laughs> it was recently put in at the time of my questioning. <laughs> Imagine going from never ever having to encounter stoplights to having a stoplight. That would be very difficult <laughs> to get used to. So they were asking, my dad asked a question and then the guy said, would a mountain lion jump off a cliff? My dad had never heard that one before, like, is the Pope Catholic, except the opposite. Uh, and my dad's thinking, I don't think he would, but what do you mean by that exactly? And the answer is, well, no, of course a mountain lion would never jump off a cliff. So we have sayings and phrases in English that confuse us. Well, how much more when we study the Bible might there be words or phrases or sentences that to us, living 2,000 years later, in a different culture, in a different language, having the phrases being translated from Hebrew or Greek to English, do you think we might encounter some phrases that might be a little tricky to understand at times? Particularly if you've never heard them before. So we start off actually in the book of Job. First of our four passages, Job chapter 1, verse 1. Now for most of you, this will sound familiar, but for some of you, this may be something that you are interested in knowing. What does this mean? Job chapter 1, verse 1. Now, some of us just looking at it would say, well, where's Job? I can see the book of Job, but what about Job? Again, that's just another thing we take for granted. The letters J-O-B, we pronounce Job in the Bible, not Job. Unless we're talking about Job's job, then it would be the same word twice. A little confusing, right? For those of you that had to learn English as a second language, you know we have these things that we just intuitively know in English, but for non-native speakers, it's not obvious. Not obvious at all. So Job chapter 1 Verse 1, it says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. Now the question that someone who maybe is reading this for the first time would have is, what does it mean when it says God, he feared God? Because we always talk that God is a loving God, right? one that we don't need to be afraid of, one that we can approach and enjoy his presence. And of course, as many of us have learned, having heard this word a time or two, the word fear can mean more than one thing, right? And we talked about this the other week. Certain words can sound the same, like the word refuse and refuse, spelled the same, but mean totally different things. The word fear not only can mean to be afraid of, but what else can it mean? To reverence, or to respect, or to honor. In fact, just in the verse itself, we find some clues that help us. Remember the context. Sometimes you may not understand a word, but if you hear it in a sentence, it will help. Like, have you ever watched the spelling bee before? One of the questions that the kids will ask, could you please use it in a sentence? They're trying to get a little bit more time to think about how to spell it, but then also, sometimes the way it's used, 
may give them some clues that will help. And I saw a, clue, a, a video clip recently of a kid at a spelling bee who also asked, could I please have the spelling in a spelling bee? And they were denied the spelling. So look at how this word is used in the sentence. It says, Job, a.k.a. Job, he was blameless and upright. Now the word upright, we, we interpret not to mean that he had good posture, but to mean that he was morally upright. He had a good character. Uh, he was in good standing before God. So he's a good guy, and he fears God. And then it says he shunned evil. He turned away from evil. So just the words even around that give us an idea that it's probably not being used in the I'm afraid of God sense. Now, when we go to the story of Genesis uh, chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin, they were fearing God, but what were they doing while fearing God? They were hiding. Uh, and so the context of the story gives us an idea for how a word is used. Like when we talked about the Sabbath from Colossians chapter 2, and we saw how the context and the linguistic indicators help us learn. By the way, the first phrase, feared God, the exact phrase that's used here, the first time it's used is in the story of Abraham when he was willing to offer up his son Isaac. And in the end, the angel of the Lord, who's also identified as God in that verse, says, now I know that you fear God because you were willing to give up your one and only son. And so the very first use of fearing God is in the context of being willing to surrender all to God. And then you can think about uh, Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14. He said, hear the conclusion of the matter. Here's the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments. So we, we know the phrase, a God-fearing person is somebody who is respecting God, obeying him, following him. And of course, as Adventists, Revelation 14, verse 6, fear God and give glory to him. Part of glorifying God and respecting him, fearing him, is giving him glory. So a very good question. Very good question. So we go on to our second question. What did Paul mean when he said, if you won't work, you shouldn't eat? Let's take a look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. I was trying to find a way to tie all of these verses together, having a theme running through all of them. It was a little challenging. So we're just going from one thing to the next. This is like potluck today. And everybody loves a good potluck, right? Of course, there is potluck and then there's potluck. So it has to be a, a good potluck, which is what we have and will have, hopefully as things get easier and easier. By the way, things are, changes are coming. Thank you for your patience, and we're going to be getting some announcements, hopefully soon, that will begin to ease some of how we do things here, because cases are going down, which is really good, very good to hear. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Notice the words of the Apostle Paul. It says, For even while we were with you, we commanded you this, 
If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now here's a question. Does that mean that if you're retired or if you're a student and you don't have a job yet that you can't eat? No. Do you get to eat, Jaden? You do, okay. Do you have a full-time job yet, though? No, okay. But I think it's good that you get to eat. What is the Apostle Paul meaning? Well, let's back it up a little bit, and we'll see in the broader context a little bit more clearly what he's talking about. And some might wonder, does this mean that we should never have any sort of social safety net? Uh, because not all of us are able to work. Um, and sometimes even when you want to work, you can't find a job that allows you to work. Look at starting in verse 6. The Apostle Paul there says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, and not according to the tradition which he received from us. So Paul's saying, hey, be careful of some of these people that are not walking according to what we've been, what we have given you. Verse 7, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we did not, uh, we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but we worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. The Apostle Paul was especially careful not to be appearing to be a freeloader or that he was merely traveling around living off of other people's generosity. Uh, he didn't want to be criticized and have that take away from his ministry. And so Paul had literally a tent-making ministry where he would work on the side so that he could support his own self through the work of ministry. Now, of course, the Bible teaches that it's not wrong to support people in full-time ministry, but Paul didn't want people getting the wrong idea. Um, and so he was saying, hey, you saw what we did. We didn't eat from you without our, you know, contributing in some way. Verse 8 again, he says, Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. He didn't want to burden the believers and the various churches. Verse 9, not because we do not have authority, in other words, not because we couldn't have done so, but to make ourselves an example for how you should follow us. Paul's example here is to, to not be a burden on others and not, how do they say, mooch too much. I remember when I was in college and I would go to the potluck that was there. I never brought anything ever. And for a college student, it's a little more understandable. Uh, but you know, if you have means and you're able, it's a blessing when you can contribute. Um, and, and not everybody can bring food, but I tell you what, they can help clean up. Amen? And they can help take out the trash. And so I think that's the idea. Everybody can do something. But if there are people that are unwilling to do anything, um, and sometimes the biggest blessing is just the fellowship that you bring. Uh, now notice what he says next. In that context, he says, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work. Now, the Greek word there is thelos, which re relates to your willingness. 
So other translations say, if anyone is unwilling to work, neither should he eat. There are some of us that are more than willing, but just not able. Or we've done our work in life. And so we're able to rest from our labors. Thank the Lord. Although people say when you're retired, often you're more busy than when you were working full time. Uh, And then there are some who would like to work, but they just aren't unable to work. But you know what? Paul, in his journeys, he went around to collect money for the believers in Jerusalem. There was a real financial need. There were people who were hungry and were in physical need. Paul was not against helping out those in need. He collected money so that they could help those who were in need. But what he was talking about here is people who have an unwillingness to work. Uh, They're capable of working, but they're merely trying to freeload or live off of other people. And that's what he's talking about. And the Bible certainly is filled with examples of the negative effects of sloth and laziness and the positive benefits that work has for us. Verse 11, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner. Um, And in the Greek there, it it has this idea of idleness. Again, people who could work are capable of it. They just, I don't want to do anything. Paul was saying, don't enable such people. If they want to eat, let them work. Let them do something. Everybody can do something. In fact, that's what we were talking about in Sabbath school today. Everybody can do something in church. And some of you might think, well, well, what can I do? The the most basic thing any of us can do is pray. In fact, that is often the hardest thing to do and the most important thing that anyone can do. So if you're not sure how you can contribute to church, the first thing you can be doing is you can start praying. You can get a directory of all the church names and you can start looking at those faces, looking at those names, and start praying for God to work. Praying for the prayer request list. Asking other church members, is there anything I can pray about for you? When was the last time someone asked you personally if they could pray for you? And if there was something that you had specifically? You can provide a ministry of prayer. And there are so many other things. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about more specifically opportunities to be involved here at church. But everybody can do something. And that's, I think, what Paul is saying here. And then verse 12, we'll close out with this. Now those who are of such command, we command and exhort through the Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. It's all right to provide for others, but don't try to be a mooch. Try to provide some sort of benefit um, when you do that. And you recall that the early Christian church lived much more in community where people literally sold their possessions and gave it to the church. So if you are selling your possessions, you're wanting it to go to ministry and the mission, not to supporting someone who's unwilling to do what they are capable of doing. So hopefully that makes a little bit more sense there. We move on to our third question. And our third question comes to us now Uh, for the words of Jesus. What did Jesus mean in Mark 9, 43 to 45, when he said, if your eye offends thee, cut it out. 
So let's turn to Mark chapter 9, verse 43. Mark chapter 9, verse 43. Sometimes people say, well, we need to have a plain reading of the Bible, plain reading of the text, and that's what we need to follow. But we forget that actually all readings of the Bible require some sort of interpretation. Um, If not, all of us should have no eyes and no hands and no feet if we are to honestly follow what would be a plain reading of the text. We need to understand what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying here. Matthew chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 9, verse 43. If your hand, well, let's back it up to verse 42. But whatever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and if he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands and go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We've talked about these verses before, not talking about an everlasting hell, but uh, consequences that go on forever. Verse 45, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life lame rather than having two feet and be cast into hell, into the fire that shall not be quenched. Verse 47, and if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than two eyes be cast into hellfire. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, you know, in the early Christian church, there was at least one early church father, his name was Origen, who struggled with lust, and when he read these verses, he thought God was, that Jesus was making a literal statement here, and he did a bit of a surgery on himself. Um, I don't believe that that's what Jesus intended. I think most of us get that general sense from reading it. You know, when you read the sayings of Jesus and other sayings in Scripture, there are a number of them that we just naturally know not to take it in its fullest literal sense. For example, Jesus said to take up your cross daily. I don't see that any of you brought your cross here. Why? Because we understand what Jesus was intending by his words. In taking up our cross, we are accepting this life that God has for us, a life of surrender and sacrifice, and sometimes involving um, difficulties, but doing it for the sake of Jesus, just like he did for us. You can think about other phrases. Jesus said it's easier for a rich man to enter the kingdom, or easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, it has been suggested, and I've heard this before, that that Jerusalem had a specific gate called the eye of a needle, and that camels could go through it, but they had to kneel down and take off their burdens and so forth. As I have learned about this, it's my understanding that that specific gate was not built until after the time of Christ. 
Uh, and so probably not a reference to what Jesus was referring to. Instead, Jesus was using hyperbole, which is a fancy word for exaggeration, to illustrate a point. In other words, if you're wealthy, it's hard not to be distracted by the temptations of wealth. And so you need to be watching out for that and so forth. So when Jesus says, better to cut off your eye, pluck it out, cut off your hand, cut off your foot, what is he saying? He's saying, don't let anything get in the way of you and following God. The consequences and the effects of sin in your life are so serious that you need to take them as serious as if you were literally removing a part of your body. And, and we can take this in another way. If you have problems with a certain temptation, do it as far as possible. Do what you can to remove yourself from that temptation. You know, the classic example of if you're tempted to buy ice cream and you don't want to buy ice cream, it's not wise to walk down the ice cream aisle at the supermarket and just kind of wonder, now how would that one taste? Now, I'm not going to have it. I just want to know, I just want to met. That, that would remove yourself as far as possible from that situation. Stop enabling yourself to fall into temptation. Take temptation seriously. I think we don't realize just how bad sin is. The fact that Jesus had to die a gruesome death on the cross indicates that sin is of such a horrific character that he couldn't just say, it's okay, I forgive all of you. He had to come down and die for us. And so be very practical. Think about the areas where the devil trips you up in your life. And figure out if there aren't ways that you've been enabling yourself through a certain means. Find a way, as far as possible, to cut yourself off from falling into that temptation. But you don't have to go as far as removing your eyes, because if you remove your eyes and you struggle with lust, where does lust start? It starts in your mind, doesn't it? Um, now, we can use our mind to direct our eyes in lustful purposes, but if you struggle with hatred or, or lust or these kinds of things, it starts actually in our mind, in our heart. And that's what Jesus wants to work on. And we can't remove our brain. If we remove our brain, we have nothing left to offer. So hopefully that makes a little bit more sense. And we, cl we close today by going to the book of Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Jesus made kind of a startling statement here. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. It's here Jesus says this. Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, didn't Jesus say in another place that he was the prince of peace? And didn't he say to his followers, peace I give you, my peace I leave with you, let not your hearts... Didn't he say those kinds of things? Didn't he say... 
that he wanted us to love one another. So what in the world is he saying, I didn't come for peace, I came for a sword. And here's where, if we only read these verses, we will have an incomplete picture. It's like if someone were to read your diary, your journal, but they only read one paragraph. Would they really fully understand your thoughts if they only read just that one paragraph? No, they need to read a wide selection. Now, I hope nobody reads your journal, at least not without your permission. But sometimes, when a saying of Jesus confuses us, we can read widely through what he says, and then we'll get a better understanding of what he's talking about. It's kind of like with Ellen White. People will take one quotation from her, and that becomes the pinnacle of all moral behavior. And sometimes she gives opposite counsel to someone else, because the situation calls for a different response. So we need to read very widely in these things. But as you study the context of where Jesus is and what he's teaching to his disciples, he's about to send his disciples out on a mission. And they're going to go knocking on doors and trying to spread the good news for him. And he realized that they were going to encounter opposition. Because as good as the good news is, there's also the devil who's trying to do bad things. And whenever somebody is making positive steps towards God, does the devil take that lightly and... and does he get happy about that? No, just the opposite, which is maybe why sometimes in your own life, when you're trying to, to do good, you're just trying to follow after God, you experience greater difficulties. Because Satan's trying to discourage you so that you give up and you go back to your old ways. Jesus recognized this happens. And not everybody was going to accept the good news. For those who accept it, they say, this is awesome, this is life-changing, this is just what I want. But for those who rejected his message, it had the opposite effect on them. For the high priests, the, the priests and the high priests and the religious leaders that rejected Jesus, they got angry. They, they, they plotted his demise and his destruction, and that's the way that the devil works in us. It, it, he has this polarizing effect if we reject the Holy Spirit's work in us. Maybe you've experienced this in your own life. You're just trying to, to do right by God in your own family, but you have family members that aren't quite on the same place with you and God. And sometimes they get mad that you're trying to follow after God. Well, you shouldn't be giving your money to the church. You need to keep your money for yourself. Well, what are you doing? You don't need to, it's just a day, it doesn't matter. You don't have to go to church every week, do you? And we meet this opposition. Maybe you've experienced that. It's sad when we experience that. And we might be tempted to stop, to compromise, to, to bend our principles for the sake of peace in our homes. But Jesus warned us, that the effects of the gospel, for some, will lead them in a joyful path, and for the others, it will lead them in opposition to what we have. 
Some people get disowned by their families, particularly if they come from a different faith group that's very different. Some people have given up everything to follow after Christ. You know, people kind of misunderstood Jesus. They wanted him to bring a sword, but to destroy the Romans. But he was really there for peace in people's hearts. But spiritually, the effects of his preaching was that naturally as it entered into homes, it was going to cause some to follow and some to turn away. And so that's why Jesus says, don't think I came to bring peace on the earth. Of course, he, he wanted to bring peace, but the effects of his ministry would be that some would reject. Verse 35, for I have come to set a man against his father and daughter against his mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. He's talking about the cost of discipleship. We don't get to heaven because someone else in our family loved God. We go to heaven because we've invited Jesus in personally to our life. And unfortunately, it won't always be that our family and friends will make the same decision. But Jesus is saying, your main focus has to be me first and then everything else. Now, fortunately, as the Apostle Paul talked about, sometimes the unbelieving spouse will come to the Lord because of the example of the believer. But we have to start by leading by example. You know, if you've ever ridden on an airplane and watched the presentation or read in the little picture booklet, which is kind of funny the way they try and depict things sometimes. Sometimes I like to try to interpret it a little too literally. I know what it's supposed to be saying, but I try to interpret it a little bit too literally. But one of the things that they say, if the cabin should lose pressure, an oxygen mask will deploy from the ceiling. And they always tell the adults, put the mask on yourself first before helping anyone else. Now, for a parent, that might seem opposite. You think, I need to sacrifice myself. I need to get my kids taken care of first and then myself. Are they trying to be selfish when they tell you to put it on first? No. Well, why do they tell you to put it on first for you and then help others? Exactly. Because if the oxygen is really that low, if you are helping someone else while you're losing oxygen and your brain is losing oxygen, you will be incapable of helping other people and then you will be a, a hindrance for others. And so the way to really help others is to first take care of yourself and then you'll be able to help others. You know, sometimes we feel that self-care is selfish and wrong. But that's not how I understand what the Bible teaches. Jesus said, come apart and rest a while. They hadn't even had time to eat. No, we need to take some time to rest a while. 
And if your work or your or, or church is burning you out because you're volunteering too much, it's okay to say, I need a break. I need some time for me to recharge because we can't serve God if we can't even serve anybody because we're burnt out. And so if we want to be a blessing to our family and our friends, we don't be a blessing to them by displaying a morally compromised life. We be a blessing to them, we can be a blessing to them by plugging into God every day, by letting his love and his peace, by being a God-fearing person, a person who turns away from temptation and is willing to do whatever it takes to stay on God's path. Someone who's not freeloading, somebody who is who is trying to do their part in the kingdom of God. Connecting first and foremost to God, and then people can see in us something that's worth changing their lives for also. I want to have that loving relationship. How about you? I want my family and my friends to be saved. I don't want this, the gospel to, to drive a wedge in between us. But at the end of the day, first and foremost, I must seek God for myself. You must seek God for yourself and pray daily that God will use you to reach your family, to be a blessing for them. Because as, as we close out, that last verse again, verse 39, he who finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. As we give to God what we can't hold on to ourselves, he gives us back so much more. Well, hopefully this helps answer some of your questions. We have one or two more weeks to go. Next week, David's census. Big topic. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of interesting questions that we're going to talk about. Who actually incited the census? Was it Satan or was it God? The Bible says two different things. But let's bow our heads as we pray. Loving Heavenly Father, Thank you so much that you've given us your word. We don't always understand it as well as we'd like to, but we want to keep on studying and learning. We want to be people who are God-fearers, people who follow after you. And Lord, we want our family and friends to be saved too. We need your help to be a witness. It's hard because they know the right buttons to push, and sometimes we lose our temper, sometimes we don't represent you very good. But Father, we want your help. We need the Holy Spirit in our hearts day by day so that we can be used by you. And Lord, when you come back, we can't wait to see you. and We can't wait to see all those that you've used us to reach in some way. Thank you for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see a number of you back at 2.30 today. Uh, otherwise, God bless you. Don't forget about prayer meeting in person and online again, Wednesdays at 7, and we'll see you soon.